Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. When I was at HP, we were at an executive retreat and Ken Blanchett, the author of One Minute Manager, was our speaker. And this was during the period when we were changing rapidly. And he said something that has stuck with me and you can see it in everything I've said. He said, change is death. And so you will go through, no matter what the mind says, the emotions in the body will go through the five stages of death and dying. He said, so, he told us, he says, so when we leave here, go into your breakout sessions. I want you to deny it, that change is coming. I want you to get angry. I want you to blame. I want you. And then when you get to the other side, let it go and move on. But experience all those emotions. It was a very powerful statement, uh, had a huge impact on me, but made me really appreciate how much an organization is just like a living being. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that story comes from the founder and CEO of Quantum Leaders, Norman Wolf, who believes in order to transform your organization, you must first let it die. So throughout today's discussion, Wolf shares how to apply a lens of quantum leadership, understand the dynamics of change, and view your organization as a living being. So without further interruption, may I introduce to you episode 186 with the real Norman Wolf. Enjoy. I'm back in focus in four, three, two, one, and welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the founder and CEO of Quantum Leaders, Norman Wolf. Norman, thanks for being with us today. Nice to be with you, Kevin. It's very a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited. Norman, you and I had a fun conversation that, that may last longer than this podcast itself uh, <laughs> a, a few months ago. So I'm really excited to kind of um, you know, get into your mind about how you see the living organizations what quantum leadership means to you. And today, folks, if you're listening to us on audio, we've got a nice friend with us as well. We've got Brandy the dog with us as well. Brandy is joining, joining Norman and I today here on Crowdcast, and that's why you should be watching this on the live stream. But Norman, first question is this. Quantum leaders. I've never heard quantum in the sense of a leadership form. Tell us what you mean by quantum. Well, it actually... Um came to me in, in sort of an intuitive insight when I was thinking of naming the company. And that was back in 2001. And so since then, I've actually pondered that question myself and have been asked by many people, what is, why quantum leaders and what does quantum mean? It, it's an indication, as I've come to appreciate it, it's an indication of a couple of things. One is the, the paradigm shift from the mechanistic Newtonian thinking to more of the more robust way of thinking about the world is often represented by quantum physics. So it has a tie into the notion of quantum physics as a, as a new way of uh, looking at the world in a much more robust way, much more nuanced way. So leaders who can think about their organizations in a more robust and nuanced way um, are quantum leaders. Uh, quantum also has a notion of a quantum leap Right, so leaders who want to go to a next level. Uh, so the name carries a lot of uh, inferences in itself, and a lot of it is designed or or projected by people. And I'm always fascinated how others how others define it. I, I think the the bottom line is we view every person as a potential leader, mainly because if you look at the definition of leadership, it's someone who influences others. And everybody influences somewhere, some someone somewhere along the line of their lives. And, and so a quantum leader who is somebody who has a really positive impact on others in a conscious way. Mm, okay. 
So maybe help me understand how you perceive normal leaders or normal organizations that are not quantum leaders or not or do not have a quantum way of thinking about their organization. You know, a, a good way to look at it is, I, I, I've been using this metaphor recently, and let me see how it lands. Um, imagine going into a movie theater that's showing a 3D movie, but you have on, you don't have the 3D glasses on. Mm, okay. Now you can see sort of the the, the basic outline of, of the movie and you can sort of tell what's going on. Mm, I like that. But it's more like one or two dimensional. You put on the glasses and all of a sudden things look different. Quantum leaders are those regular leaders see life through a certain lens. And it's not bad. It shows kind of some of the stuff that shows up, but it's not as deep and robust, as nuanced, as significant. And they miss a lot. Hmm. And then what they miss is the the underlying forces or dynamics um, that impact what the, how they're influencing others, how they are uh, creating outcomes. Um, and and so putting on the lens, you've got a lot more. Um, how shall I say? A, a lot more resources you can uh, use because you understand and see things completely differently. Hmm. So a quantum leader has has the ability to see uh, see the uh, range of dynamic um, forces that are impacting how people work together and how they get outcomes. Mm. It, there was a quote I liked the other day, and it was very similar to what you had just said. It was, if you can change your perspective, then your behaviors follow. And when your behaviors follow, your actions follow. So be perspective, behaviors, actions. So this and I'll add one more to that, yeah. uh, outcomes. And outcomes. Actions lead to outcomes, absolutely. Yep. So when you change your perspective, uh, you're able to, everything that you do will follow, your behaviors will follow, and then the things that you want to do and your behaviors, your actions will follow, the outcomes lead to that. So how does one gain a perspective of quantum leadership? Well... <laughs> That's a really interesting uh, question. How does typically um, what I've discovered in my own life and working with leaders throughout the throughout the years, um, we 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 can gain the perspective through education, knowledge. Uh, we we can understand something new exists, but we don't really shift our perspective, or some people call it a mindset, or we call it a context. Um, you don't really get to change your context or, or there's no stimulation to change the context until something isn't working. Hmm. You, you go back to what we just said, you know, if, if the outcomes I'm getting satisfy me and there's no reason to change my actions, therefore no reasons to change my, my behaviors, therefore no reason to change my perspective or context. Hmm. When the outcomes are no longer that I'm getting no longer are the ones I want. Now I've got a stimulation, a, a catalyst, if you will, to begin to explore. And the challenge with most companies, most leaders, and in fact, society overall, is we tend to stop at the level of behaviors. What I mean by that is if I have an outcome I want, and we all know it's pretty well stated, uh, trying to get a new outcome by doing the same behaviors over and over again is the definition of insanity. That's a, I mean, I don't know how, I don't know of a human on planet that hasn't heard that at some time or another. It's so, it's so common. But that's where we stop. And, and very few people actually put on the 3D glasses and look like, so why do I behave the way I do? Hmm. If you look at something as simple as New Year's resolutions, I think the statistics say 80-something percent of people who make New Year's resolutions fail to achieve them after like 30 days. Mm -hmm. just go, right? It's not like we don't want to change our behaviors, but something is stopping us. And that's, the, that's one of the, what we call the power of context, this, this power of understanding behaviors flow out of our perceptions, our worldviews, or as I said, we call it context. And until we learn how to consciously work with context, um, 
there's very little hope of actually changing anything. When it comes to outcomes and changing your perspective to get that outcome, what is what are some of the misconceptions or the challenges of uh, setting the right pers- uh, perspective for that outcome? I.e., if I want to be healthy, people that set the New Year's resolution, right? They'll say, you know, I want to lose 20 pounds. Except that we all know that's the wrong goal to be setting. The right goal to be setting is you should be trying to live a healthy lifestyle. Because you reach those 20 pounds of lost weight, and then you go back to your normal behaviors. Your perspective changes. I've already reached it. When it comes to outcomes and the goals that people should be setting or the mindset that they should be in, how does a quantum leader need to be thinking? Well, what we teach leaders and people in general is how to unpack the underlying context um, such that they have the ability to to reframe them. That's the way we like to talk about it. Uh, context really is a is a set of stories. If you think about how your belief systems, and you can look at context as belief systems as well, that's another uh, term people often use. Uh, think about it as I had an experience at some point in time, and I had to make some meaning out of that experience. Well, the way humans make meaning out of it is they create a story that give it meaning. And, out of, and part of that story is associated the behavior that given this meaning, if I behave this way, I'll be either safe or successful. And over the course of my life, and when I say my life, you can think of the same thing happening to an organization from the time it's born. It has a bunch of collective experiences. It creates a meaning of what that experience means to their health and well-being and creates a set of behaviors. We, Over time, those sets of behaviors form into patterns we call culture. Right? It's the same thing with a human or, or an organization or a collective, I often call it. The question is, if I really want to change my outcomes, and, and as you point out, we got to change the behavior, we got to understand the nature and dynamics associated with this meaning-making, story-making part of our psyche. And so until you get into that level, you really don't have a chance of changing your behavior. So the way we go about doing it is is learning to define what are the underlying stories. So if you look at the health uh, situation, the weight or the just general lifestyle health, why am I going to the refrigerator at nine o'clock at night, sitting there watching TV and feel compelled to want to make a sandwich or to get some ice cream. Mm. Uh, um, I'm sitting there and my mind's going, I shouldn't have this, but my body's going, yes, you want it, you want it, go get it, you need it. There's some part of me that developed a story about that. Now, for me, I can tell you, it's it's a pattern I picked up from my father. I watched him at night and he would nosh, he'd eat ice cream, he'd eat cakes, you know. Inside of me, I have a part of me that says, that's the way you live. Hmm. That's normal behavior. And so I've got to unpack that story. And part of unpacking that story and replacing it is the recognition that who we are as, a, as an individual or as an individual that's a collective, say a company, who we are becomes a sense of identity. Hmm. And so our stories are very tied to our sense of identity which means I'm giving up a part of me. And the body experiences that as a death process. Hmm. So you see all these dynamics are are what we teach, how to deal with that, how to address that, so that you have a better chance of affecting the change you would want to get the outcomes you want. Hmm. That's powerful. And that's really interesting. You know, like, like so many people during this quarantine, have gained weight and it's just like a a normal thing like what you said like you see the fridge you live at home it's this constant reminder of oh i want to go get something to eat and so we've almost accepted this new reality of oh they've gained weight oh it should be because because of the in the quarantine people are at home it's easy to do so when it comes to discipline when it comes to i'm going to rewrite my story and change who i am and my life is a movie uh, what are some things people can do to you know 
make sure that they are staying to the, the script, essentially? <clears throat> yeah, so that's a great question. And we call it scaffolding. And I'll, I'll explain scaffolding. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and it's, we're talking individuals, but I want to keep reminding people that an organization is also a living being and, and follows the exact same patterns of change. Um, so scaffolding has two components. It's structures that we have, formal systems and structures. Uh, a, a formal structure might be a note on the refrigerator or um, every time I get up to get something, uh, you know, my wife's is, is given permission to say, hey, you do you really want that, you know, or some other means of supporting me to create to that supports the new story I want, which is uh, I am not my father. I live a healthy life and and I don't really need that. Whatever that need is that that created the desire to get up and get it. So there's sort of physical structures we put around ourselves. Uh, in business, it could be shifting a process, um, changing a, a, a system and how the system it functions to support the new story. Um, the second part is what I call informal scaffolding, and that's really ritual. Rituals are like routines, patterns we repeat over and over again. The difference between the ritual and routine is a conscience intention. So, for example, when I get up to the refrigerator, I might consciously say uh, something like, um, to use this example, it might be something like, uh, in, in the, in, in, I bring an attention to the act of getting up and asking the question, is this good for me? Or is this in my highest and best well-being? And and I and then I put myself at a point of choice. I consciously choose at this moment to rewrite my story and to behave differently. Mm -hmm. That's that kind of ritualistic orientation to it, where you're bringing conscious intention to the action, changes is what re-empowers the new story, supported by external structures and, and combined. Those are what we call setting up the scaffolding. We do that in business all the time with different rituals and um, establishing new rituals that support a new story. So when it comes to this living organization, you know, you're processing going in, hey, this is how, this is a new strategy you could use. It's more focused on the, the people within the actual business. This is how we change behaviors. This is how we write your own script. This is how we change your perspective to have your people change your behaviors to make them do the actions you want to achieve the outcomes. Is that kind of a fair consensus? Yes and no. Simple thing. Uh, right. <laughs> um, there's a little nuanced difference between what you said and what we do. Um, if you think, so you've heard me talk about a collective as a living being. Um, that, that's really not insignificant. It's really an important element. Think about any organization and, and keep it small, like a department or a team. If you step back, you can observe that the team operates as a collective. It, that department, sales department, has a different personality, a different persona, uh, a different worldview, if you will, than, say, the accounting department. And everybody kind of assumes that, right? But they don't recognize what, how significant that is. When you are part of it, when an individual is part of a collective, because we have one of the three innate needs of human beings is a sense of belonging, we naturally begin to assume the persona or integrate the persona of the collective into our individual personas. Mm. We become part of, and literally we mean that. Uh, if I'm living in New York, I have one persona than if I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's just the way of life. It's like the energy pattern of the collective influences my personal energy patterns. Right. That's significant because as a leader, I don't have to, and, and this is where the difference between what you said and how we approach it, I don't have to worry about all of the individuals, which could be hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of individuals in my organization. I focus on the collectives 
of which those individuals work. So if I want to change, say, the behavior of a sales department, not so much worried about the behaviors of the individuals in the sales department. I focus on the collective patterns of the collective individual called sales department. And I even work with clients and I, I, to help them get their minds around this concept, I say, give the department a name, not just sales. Is it Joe or Sally? Is it female or male? What's its personality? Define its attributes. Hmm. What's its maturity level? How, how, how mature is it? Maturity is, is the ability to, to think beyond myself. Right? It's not all about me and mine, which is a very young child, but it's about the collective. It's about me being part of something bigger. Other po people's points of view, I can accept and at least process. I don't have to agree with them. Those are mature people, people who can um, think beyond the here and now in the next quarter, but can think about what's life going to be in a year from now or two years from now, and how is my decision going to impact? So when we talk about maturity levels, we're really talking about those two dimensions of, of space, which is about me and mine, uh, or us or we, uh, versus, and the other dimension is the time dimension, here and now versus long term. Oh, as the Native Americans like to talk about it, is I, I decide for seven generations out. Um, so when I look at an, as a, as an, an organization, I'm looking at the collective I'm working with, which could be a department, it could be a team, or it could be the organization as a whole. And I begin to define its personality. Um, and, it, and, and to help people realize the reality of that statement, think about the uh, Mac versus PC advertisements of not too many years ago the the mac person was shown as this young hip person right. kind of just like i am and the pc was wearing a suit and a tie and a little bit more rigid looking and that's because they they do they have personalities so we apply what i said about outcomes behaviors context to the collective we look at the underlying collective's personality context or their stories what makes them feel as a collective they can be safe and successful. And we unpack that and look at the scaffolding that exists, both formal and informal, that support the existing story. And we begin to create change initiatives to address those elements. And then the behaviors naturally follow, the sustainable and the outcomes we want that achieved almost effortlessly. Mm, okay. So if the environment dictates the, the culture, it's kind of similar to what you're saying. So you think about a sales team and you think about a development team for a software company. Mm -hmm. The tech guys, the coders, they're going to have a different mentality than the salespeople who just want to make money and, and believe they're the, you know, the, the lifeblood of the company and this is what makes the company run. And the tech guys are saying, no, we, we are what makes the company run. And, and you're trying to basically bring or establish or define these two groups to help these leaders define these two groups to maybe find some, some connection or symbi symbiosis between these two to help them change their own perspectives to achieve that common outcome? Yeah, so th that's a great question. I mean, it really gets to the whole question of what people talk about as silos, right? Each right. person, so again, if I look at it as a living being, each person is really concerned about their own well-being and don't really care about the others. That's a certain level of maturity, and that's okay. Um, it, that's okay if mommy and daddy. If we look at this in a in a in a relationship oriented organization, which you can correlate it or use the family as a metaphor. If we look at it as mommy and daddy is willing to resolve every conflict that comes up, there's some benefits to having each department focus on their individual expertise. And that's the way we structured it at the early days of modern corporation, mm. like a machine. And each department's a specific component. I, as the leader, tell the component what the instruction set is they're supposed to follow on programming the machine. I tell sales, you focus on this, don't worry about anything else. I tell operations, you focus on this, and product development, you focus on developing products. And, and I'm the coordinator. <laughs> I'm designing each component to work together right? Because I'm designing the machine. That worked great in the, in the early part of the 20th century. It, 
doesn't work too good today because right. things are moving way too rapidly, right? Mm. The VUCA world everybody talks about. And that's why we're talking about lots of talks around agile business, self-organizing teams, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the problem. It's, it, it goes back to maturity. As, a, as this individual who's only thinking about myself, and when I use the word individual, I'm talking about the collective. As a collective individual thinking about myself, it's not my job to worry about the whole. Mm-hmm. Raising children, we have the same problem. At five and at two to eight years old, children are typically very self-oriented. And when there's conflicts between siblings, mommy and daddy step in and say, you know, Billy, you go to your corner and Sally, you go to your corner. And this is this is the rule and this is how you're going to behave. As the children grow up, you hope they learn to make those decisions on their own Hmm. for the good of the family. Right? For the well-being of the collective. Well, it's the same problem set we have in organizations. How do we help? two departments focus on the well-being of the whole over the well-being of the individual. Mm. And and that's a maturity problem. And again, you can't solve that through a mechanistic means, giving incentives, aligning goals, and all of that. You got to do it at the at the at the persona level or the personality level, the maturity level. So they choose and want to choose to focus on the collective over the individual. Okay. And when it comes to this living being, what are some of like the nutrients this thing needs to grow? You have the perspective, you change the the attitudes, the mindsets, the beliefs of of believing in something bigger than themselves. You establish a maturity, uh, a sense of maturity into these individual defined silo groups. But what really now after this happens are some of the nutrients these groups need to work together, exchange energies, exchange communications, exchange ideas, beliefs, things like that in order for them to grow and thus sustain? Well, it comes down to, I think, I think the core binding energy, if you want to call it that, is what people are calling purpose. And I don't mean purpose statements. I mean purpose stories, energetic stories, myths, if you will, by why we exist, what we hit, who we serve, and what we want to accomplish in serving them. How, how can we best connect with those we serve, understand their deepest needs, not just their surface needs, treat them as relationships, not as, not as transactions. So again, we nurture the notion of being a living being. Living beings want to be in relationship with other living beings, right? And so I, as, a, as an organization, I, as an individual, join the sales team because I'm oriented. I'm like a, um, if you think of the human body, a, a heart cell won't do very good in the lung. Right? It's oriented towards being a, a, a cell in the heart. So I'm an individual and I'm oriented to being a cell in the sales organ. Right? Uh, I'm an individual and I'm oriented to be a cell in the accounting organ. So I join this, this department or this team to contribute to its well-being, and the team joins to contribute to the well-being of the collective, the whole, the organization. And by well-being, it's why are we here? Who do we serve? You know, even human beings find, and I've seen a number of studies, of people who are treated with depression by focusing outside of themselves and going into service with others, Mm. to others, right? Human beings are really meant to serve others, uh, not to focus on our little egoic boundary conditions. Um, so one of the key nutrients is to have a really clear purpose story. And, and I say story because too much purpose work is centered around creating a nice crafted statement, you know, maybe a little picture about it or something like that. But it doesn't carry the energy of a real story, myth, right? Characters, images, um, sense of of the changing world we're going to have when we when we get there um and, and so again the, the, the those are elements of of creating a living organization not just a, a mechanistic organization uh, so what are the nutrients i i think one of the key nutrients is um 
is a is a sense of contribution that we're making as a collective. Uh, I think another key nutrient is is creating a an ability for people to or an environment where people feel they can grow and mature. That that's not only desirable but expected. And, and we shift our focus away from what can you do from a activity point of view. In other words, what can you make to who are you as a human being and how are you growing as a healthy cell in the organic nature of this collective? So it's a, it's a couple of things, but it really gets back to treating the organization as a living being and feeding it the same kind of nutrients. I also think, and this is where I come up against um, some of the people who are into, uh, the OD people who are into uh, fulfillment and well-being, I really think one of the key nutrients is profit. I think profit is, a, you know, I mean, think about a family who is struggling to pay the bills. Why would we expect organizations not to want to have profit? The problem with profit isn't that profit is bad. It's the way we frame profit as the as the God, as the goal, as opposed to framing the goal as serving others. Mm-hmm. Profit is really nothing more than a metric that that allows us, it, it gives us the resources to feed back in that allows us to grow. It's sort of a... Um, how do I want to say it's a nutrient. It really is. It's it's a it's the food, if you will, that feeds the collective body. So if that's the outcome, you know, the outcome is profit. No, I didn't say that. The outcome well, you, you said you said the outcome, right? I said the out, the outcome is making a difference for clients. Hmm. Right? That's the outcome. Right. <laughs> profit is the byproduct or the result of doing that. And why is it a byproduct think about what it means to, if, if i'm if i'm making a difference in your life if i'm making an impact i'm going to give you something and you're going to give me something in return that's an exchange of value for value that's an energy exchange mm-hmm. uh, and, and you need to have that exchange in some form or another so that energy exchange is what we call revenue to produce that product is going to be it's going to be an energy consumption They were going to consume people's energy, number of people, and that's what turns into our expenses. Just like in a family, if I I spend more than I earn, my family's in trouble. But I'm not living to make money. I'm living to serve others. And, And in the process of serving the natural flow of energy, if done in a healthy way, uh, supports the family. So the purpose, the outcome, this is where it gets confusing. Too many people think the, and this is where profit got out of whack. Mm. It began to focus as the end in itself. A good example of that is, is how the finance world worked. At one point in time, back when people bought stock in companies back in you know Hudson Bay, company days and all of that. The investor was investing in the in the entrepreneur because they believed the outcome of the entrepreneur was going to create served society. And in return, they would get a return for that. So they were contributing to the entrepreneur's success. In that scenario, the investor is a means to the end of the entrepreneur. In the 1980s, that shifted. And the entrepreneur became a means to the end of the investors wanting a return on investment. And that shift is what got everything out of out of kilter. Um, and so now we're trying to, and, and so in reaction to that, people are throwing out profit as as the evil enemy, greed, and all of that, and and that's shifting the balance in the wrong way. It's it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. What we're trying to do is simply reorient it and turn it back around to where the entrepreneur or the company is making a difference for society and the investor or the money's coming in to support that. It's a means to the end. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that, that shift because I think it's really important. Um, Definitely clarified it. Yeah, absolutely. And so what I think the, really, the crux of this is, is from what, what I'm listening, is maturity. And if you, if maturity is defined as 
leading or creating a better life for the next generation, let's say, uh, being serving a, a higher purpose more than just yourself. Money could be a part of that. Money yep. could contribute to a better life for your family, your kids, your communities, their education uh, as well. But it's it's working for for a higher purpose. With that in mind, though, maturity is easier you know said than done, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's one of those things we've all worked on teams here. People listening to this have all worked on teams. I like to maybe give the analogy of a sports team. And, you know, being, you know, captain of many, many sports teams, you know, you are most likely the glue guy, the one that gets it, the one that the coach is going to rely upon, the one that's going to actively, you know, take a sacrifice, take less shots, play harder defense, set screens. Um, to make sure that the team can win versus trying to get yours, trying to get as many points. When it comes down to those organizations, not everyone's going to be mature. There's going to be people that are going to be, take selfish shots. There's going to be people that are going to say, hey, I'm in it for the money. How do you influence, if you are a mature leader, influence the, the hot shots, the people that have a lot of skill, the people that are trying to make as much money as possible to realize that if we all work together, it's going to be more beneficial for all and for your, for yourself as well. Well, I, I wish I had a very simple answer to that very yeah. uh, important and, and, and uh, significant uh, topic. It, it's um, again, I'll go back to, if we think about the organization as a living being, a team, you know, I, I like to look at a department or a team uh, because it's a little bit easier to get our heads around the concept uh, than, a, than a multinational organization that's got hundreds of thousands of people and tens of divisions and business units and so forth. But if, I, if I'm a leader and I'm looking at the team I'm leading or the department I'm leading, what I really want is to continually focus them on the choices they are making and invite them to consider the impact of the choices. Isn't that how we help children mature? Right? If, if, if I'm a, as a leader, I'm telling the children how to behave, but if they're a parent, I'm saying, do this, do this, do this, without them understanding, they're at, without giving them one a, a sense of, they're gonna make a choice here. Every choice has an outcome. And some people call it consequences. Right? Every choice has an outcome or a consequence. And do you really want to have that consequence? If you look at some of the coaches in sports, as you pointed out, who have really developed what you might call a group of average players into outstanding world-winning teams, it's because they kept inviting each of the individual players to make a choice to want to, not have to, but want to focus on the well-being of the collective. Mm. And, 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 and just like in, in raising a family, we look at, we look at moments of conflict or, or tensions, differences, as the opportunities to help people make that choice. Part of the challenge from a leader's point of view of helping somebody make a choice is that they may choose something other <laughs> than what the leader wants. Well, you have to allow them. Now, part of that choice is they may be choosing not to play on this team, and, and that's okay. We, we've got to allow that. Um, I actually had a CEO once who sat down with somebody, very important member of the team, who was consistently not supporting the new way of being, which was a, a more mature, you know, ways we're talking about. And he sat down with the person from the heart with a lot of love and compassion and said, you know, you're really, really important to this organization. And I'm really going to be sad to see you go if you choose to continue, you know, but, but it's your choice. It's really your choice. You see how that shifts the conversation, just that little example. That's how you help people mature. They, you can't force them to mature, but you can give them the opportunity to expand their, their viewpoints, 
to expand their perspectives, which is really a, another way of saying maturing. Um, to expand their, 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 what's important to them, the collective or the, or the self. And that's how you help them to mature. And if you do that consistently, it doesn't take long, you know, one or two of those conversations and you'll know whether they're going to play along or not, or step up or not, if you want to use that term. Um, and, and eventually you'll have an organization that is operating in a mature, more mature way. And I'll tell you from my own experience over the many years I've lived, maturity is a never ending journey. Mm. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. You're, you're constantly expanding. I'm constantly expanding my level of maturity, my, my consciousness, my awareness, my role in life, um, how I relate to others. So it's a never ending journey. And I think, I think as a leader too, you have to understand about how those persons came up with those beliefs. When you have a, a change in an organization, it's like, you know, you have to be aware and not, um, you know, defy and, and be uh, and hold you know, a person hostage uh, because they share a different sense of beliefs. Those sense of beliefs have been built on decades of experience. Yep. And when something new comes along, like you said, the businesses are forever changing. Things are rapidly uh, being innovated right now. We have to adapt. We have to change. When it comes to legacy and legacy belief, it's very difficult for people to get over their past experiences. How it, would it, you, go for it. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. And, and, and you're right, a, a, a quantum leader would recognize that and understand that the underlying dynamics we're talking about. And remember earlier I said, changing one's context has an element of, of death. The body, individual body and the collective body is experiencing death. Um, as we mature, one of the aspects of maturity is we accept more easily going through the process of letting go because we've done it so many other times. Now, when I was at Hewlett Packard, um, back in the 70s, we were growing at 50% a year. Things were changing so rapidly and it became normal. I mean, we used to joke up three, three years have gone by. Of course, it's time to reorganize. I mean, it became so normal and so natural to us to see rapid change. Hmm. Um, a few years later, my wife at the time was a VP of uh, sales operations for Toshiba, uh, Toshiba US. And they were designing end of life before they were launching the product. While they were developing the launch of a new product, a new laptop, they were also designing the end of life because it only lasted mm. six months before the next iteration came out. When you're in those kind of environments, change becomes normal and, and, and the psyche begins to accept it. When you're in an organization that's been doing the same thing for 10 years for, for an employee's life, change becomes difficult because there's no pattern of accepting change. And so we have to acknowledge that and go through the very thing I talked about earlier. And we have a whole uh, process in, in our work of um, how you go about facilitating what I call the letting go process, which in many ways follows the grieving process. When I was at HP, we were at an executive retreat and Ken Blanchett, the author of One Minute Manager was our speaker. And this was during the period when we were changing rapidly. And he said something that has stuck with me and you can see it in everything I've said. He said, change is death. And so you will go through, no matter what the mind says, the emotions in the body will go through the five stages of death and dying. He said, so, he told us, he says, so when we leave here, go into your breakout sessions. I want you to deny it, that change is coming. I want you to get angry. I want you to blame. I want you. And then when you get to the other side, let it go and move on. Mm. But experience all those emotions. It was a very powerful statement, uh, had a huge impact on me, but made me really appreciate how much an organization is just like a living being because it goes through the exact same thing. So a quantum leader would be one who recognizes that process and facilitates the organization through it with compassion, with caring, with a sense of honoring the legacy that's letting go. It might even, I, I actually did this with a, with a group. I actually held a, uh, a morning session for the change. Mm. 
and, and let people talk about the way it was, let them uh, honor it, let them respect it, let them also talk about what wasn't so good about the way it was and and talk about, so what do we want to bring forward and what do we want to let go of? And boy, that shifted the energy from stuck to change very rapidly. If change is death and change is also constant, are you developing a living organization or a dying one? Well, you know, if you look at nature, for for anything in nature to live, it must also die. Mm. So life and death are really two two sides of the same coin, and they are both required um, to, to speak about it in somewhat biblical terms. You know, you need the, uh, the crucifixion before the resurrection. Mm. It doesn't go the other way. Or as uh, in the mythology of the phoenix rising, it turns into ashes before it rises. Um, and, and this is part of maturity to begin to recognize that this process of death and rebirth um, are, are kissing cousins, if you will. They go hand in hand. Mm. And so you, you begin to accept, if I look at my own life, um, one of the levels of maturity or one of the stages that I define as making me more mature is I have an acceptance of that. And I don't shy away from it. I don't resist it. I embrace. Uh, and you know, this this is going to suck for a while. <laughs> this is going to feel bad, and that's okay. I'm going to allow that because I know that's going to free up the energy for something new to evolve. So embracing these emotions, embracing uh, the outcomes of things, embracing the new philosophies, embracing the change. Norma, what are some of the you, you've been referencing a lot of different. Um, uh, religious uh, text books. Uh, you've uh -huh. been uh, referencing a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different cultures. W what are some of the biggest cultures, philosophies, religions that have influenced you and in how you think about business? You, you know, my, my journey has been an interesting one. I've studied, uh, as you point out, many philosophies, cultures, um, religions, spiritual paths, scientific paths. Um, What's really influ influenced me the most is the realization of, the, of what's common between all of them. And, and, and this is where I got to viewing life through the lens of energy. You know, if I look at Carl Jung's work and his notion of collective unconscious, if I look at quantum physics and its notion of uh, the field of infinite potentiality before the waveform collapses, if I look at uh, the Kabbalah and uh, the notion of uh, Ein Sof, the, the infinite light, um, it, it, when, when I look at them as individual units, they all have a sort of beauty to them. And then when I ask the question, so, so how are they the same as opposed to how are they different? I go, well, they're all saying there's something infinite, something energetic, something of frequency or uh, uh, energy pattern uh, often ref referred to as love the the frequency of the universe is love um vibrating my body at the frequency of love gives me an attunement uh, with the frequency of the universe um, and so i begin to see patterns converging into one thing instead of multiple things and i think the biggest impact that's that that all of this reading and things I refer to um, has had is is seeing the commonality in this in their stories as opposed to the you the specific stories that they tell. Um, it, it's why I often refer to so many different ideas, like you point out. I'll, I'll talk about the biblical way of looking at it. I'll talk about it as a quantum physics way of looking at it. I'll talk about it as a psychological way of looking at it. Um, it's it, it's the essence that's underneath it all that's really the key message. Hmm. So, is leadership just for you influence, or is it someone who can establish a wealth of connections and exchange of energy? Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's a person who can um, work with the fields of energy that show up. In, in any environment they're in. So they have a, a, a degree of 
understanding and skill in working with the, the different fields of energy that that really drive outcomes. Um, and it's also a field of influence um, because it's recognizing that we can never control another human being. I, I, I can't make you behave a certain way. I'll go back to sort of the the, the religious way of thinking. Yeah. I often tell people, if God, whatever you define God as, uh, he or she or it, if God cannot make humans behave the way God wants us to, with God's infinite omniscience, all-present, all-powerful, what makes us as a leader think we can make a, another human being behave the way we want them to? Right. Right. And and this gets us back to to the notion of uh, choice. I can bring you to a point of choice and let you decide what you want to do for yourself. We can then together decide if what you want aligns with what the collective wants. Can you be best served by being part of this collective or are you best served by being part of another collective? And that's a different way of, of getting people to behave the way I want them to. It's not me making them. It's me just laying out. This is like, we're here to play soccer. You want to play football? I suggest you go to America. This is, you know, we're playing a certain game. We have a certain belief system, a certain set of values, a certain sense of purpose. Um, and, and that's why this collective has formed. Do you want to join this team or do you want to play on a different team? Mm -hmm. Either way is okay. But if you're going to play soccer, you can't pick up the ball and toss it with your hands. That's just not the rules of our game. Um, and, and so it's that kind of orientation that I think leaders, how leaders really influence others. And they do it with the sense of compassion. A lot of people talk about psychological safety. I think you can only create psychological safety if the person feels the energy of being cared for. Hmm. Then they're open to changing or to considering something. They're being manipulated, controlled, influenced, cajoled, they're going to put up their protection mechanisms and they're not going to feel safe. Um, so, so does a quantum leader is, is a quantum leader, someone who kills conformity. Is it someone in order to innovate in your own, in your own organization, you have to break apart the rules. You have to break down your ego. You have to uh, detach yourself from this constructionist conformist collective way of thinking. Yes, a quantum leader can be looked at as a as somebody who's revolutionary. It depends on what kind of revolution they're doing. If they again, it has a lot to do with are they coming from a place, uh, a state of being uh, that is looking to enhance the well-being of the collective's ability, so the collective has a greater ability to achieve an impact for somebody, mm -hmm. guiding the collective towards that outcome. Or are they just, you know, shifting and forcing people into a into a way of being because that's what they want for their own ego purposes? A, a quantum leader is really somebody who's truly a servant leader in, in Meg Wheatley's concept or, or Greenleaf's concept, um, where, where they where they are focused on service to the the, the clients, the customers the market segment they serve and they're also in service to to the people within the collective uh, with the goal of maturing them so a quantum leader is somebody who's reached the stage of where their focus is not about my success as a leader but the collective success and they're willing to do whatever is necessary to facilitate that and to get everybody lined up to having that same orientation so norman i'm, I'm gonna choose you as the quantum leader for this question since you are one uh we are now in a state where companies are being forced or being or realizing that a lot of their employees can work remotely work at home we knew this was coming uh but we are stuck in our ways and we say you know what i'm gonna have all my employees meet in one location from a certain amount of time from nine to five and they're going to be in their own silos, and that's how we're going to do business, and that's what's worked in the past. So when it comes to 2021, Norman, what does a quantum 
led company look like and how do you see business evolving in terms of its culture and its structure? I think the pandemic has actually been a godsend. (laughs) From the point of view, remember I talked about um, the phoenix has to turn into ashes before it can be reborn. The pandemic has been a major disruption to to existing patterns. And when we talk, I mean, we've been talking about telework, remote work for a decade now, maybe more, probably late 90s. and, and there's been no movement in it. And now all of, and, and there's been no movement because the pattern of success achieved in the old way has been so strong, even though it's been shown to be less than effective. I had a friend who's VP of sales of a, of a, a technology company. She convinced the CEO to let her work from home. She got more work done in the hours from eight to noon than she did in the office. She maintained a way of working with the the collective and got, and she doubled her sales in a three month period, just working at home. So he has the win-win. The company got more of what the company wanted or needed. She got more of what she wanted or needed because she was really working for, you know, we, we have this mechanistic view of a person being a part of the machine. And the only way I know it's working is if they're there in front of me and I can watch them on the production line, whatever that happens to metaphorically be like, and I can control them and I can watch over them and all of that. Well, that's a that's an old paradigm, you know, that we've got people who are more mature than that, who don't need parental supervision, who don't need to be watched over. And we can give them more flexibility and we can find ways to... Uh, um, and, and it changes it changes the way we allocate accountabilities. Right? So we focus from time accountability to output accountability. Mm. You know, I as a consultant, I have a consulting company. We enter into a relationship with a client, and and it's done by promising the client I will provide certain outcomes over some period of time that achieves the joint objectives we have established. How I do that, when I do that, is he, they don't look over my shoulder. Hmm. Right? They don't watch my number of hours I put in. Why can't we run companies like that? Um, as a matter of fact, there's a very large company called Hire Corporation, which is a uh, used to be a refrigerator company. Now it's a very huge, wide appliance, uh, worldwide dominant player in that field. And they have a model called Rendenhay, which is fundamentally everybody in the organization is a self-employed entrepreneur entering into contracts like a consultant would enter into a contract. Hmm. And they paid micro-enterprises and they work, micro-enterprises work on a platform with others to achieve a, a goal to satisfy customers. The model is changing. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, we've got a lot of people still stuck in. The only way we do it is the way we've always done it. But disruptions cause us to think differently. And those disruptions um, give us an opportunity. And, and going forward in 2021, we're seeing more and more companies, more and more leaders, more and more quantum leaders recognizing there's an opportunity here to break old patterns and to finally achieve something we've talked about for a long time. Mm. Empowering individual freedoms uh, to achieve the, the common collective and letting them do the things and achieve the outcomes in the ways that, uh, that works for them. Yep. I think eventually, I don't know if it's 20 years or 200 years, I think society is basically going to be a society of, uh, a, a complete gig economy. Everybody is a free agent. Hmm. Everybody has their, I call it my business inc. I, Norman Wolf, am an independent business person and I contract with others and into explicit relationships, call them contracts if you want, but about what we're going to do together, what value will I contribute and what value I'm going to get in return. Hmm. And the, do, and the collective's going to do the same thing with other collectives. 
and it's all going to be relationship-based and agreement-based. I, I like the term agreement rather than contract. Contract carries old connotations. Um, and we will work to serve serve somebody, serve a, a community, serve a, a market segment. So what does that look like on a grand scale, a global scale? Well, it looks like a completely different world. <laughs> and it's if you think about what it takes, and this is the... This is really, in many ways, the, the long-term vision of, of myself and, and the organization I'm, I'm forming. Um, for us to achieve that means that individuals have a higher level of maturity. They're no longer acting like children, looking for mommy and daddy or the, or the leader to guide us and take care of us. They're coming out of a sense of personal sense of purpose and taking responsibility for their own lives. And they have a maturity to know how to be in relationship with other people in a mature way. So what does that mean for society in the long term? It means we have a much more mature society which can handle challenges like COVID in a more mature way and respond to it much more quickly and evolve the whole planet, the whole earth, um, maturity has to do with recognizing all of the dynamics of impact, such as resources coming out of the earth. If I don't take care of replenishing them, I'm not going to have anything five years from now. Mm -hmm. So it change once we begin to increase the maturity of the of, of the collectives. We are also increasing the maturity of the individual. And the more we increase the maturity of the individual, we increase the maturity of society, which is phenomenally beneficial. Um, so I, I don't often talk about my long-term grand vision, but that's really what it is, changing the world to, to help people become more mature. But we do it one, one challenge at a time. Well, it seems like a world I definitely want to live in, Norman. So let's wrap this up now. What is your definition of a real leader? Wow. Well, given everything we say, I'd say a real leader is a quantum leader. A real leader is somebody who comes from the heart is in service to somebody else, is in service to whoever they're influencing, that focuses on the well-being of the other, um, is, is a person who is self-reflective, so they're maturing themselves in each, in each opportunity, each conflict, each upset or challenge, uh, so that they have a greater capacity to understand and be compassionate with the, the challenges and intentions others are feeling um they, they're focused on on living out their purpose and if they're a leader of a collective they're focused on living out the purpose of the collective um I, i'd say those are some of the attributes there might be more if i had more time but i think those are the key ones well norman it's been a pleasure speaking with you today my friend i, I knew this would be an interesting conversation uh, so I'm glad you were able to join us here on the Reallyers podcast. For Norman Wolf, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, live at the purpose and, and for the purpose of the collective. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Norman. Thanks, Kevin. All right, folks. And thank you for uh, tuning in to this episode of the Real Leaders podcast with Norman Wolf. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. For everyone in the chat box right now listening to this live, ask your questions for Norman right now, and I will read them to him directly. Norman, the first question comes in, uh, and this one asks, from the experiences you've encountered, what piece of advice do you think would be most valuable for young people to hear now, especially as they enter the business world? Um, it's interesting. Where my mind goes is to think about my daughter and my son-in-law who are in the in the late twenties, live from your heart. Live, do your best to understand what is it that that moves you. And folks, if you want to hear the rest of Norman's answers, well, you have to be a part of our free community where you can unlock access to live interviews and ask the guests your direct questions after the show. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com slash podcast and click on any upcoming interview to attend the show live. 
Also, folks, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please help a leader out and leave us a review to let me know what you liked, how we can improve, and who you want to see on the show. Also, another way to do that is just email me directly about a leader who is making change in your community at b at real-leaders.com. That's be at real-leaders.com. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.